um, we have a special guest with us tonight, um, all the way from Sydney, the land of the actual land of the free. Um, and it's um, it's super awesome to have you with us, Alex. Um, you're a member of the Arzim team, bro, and um, we met through Dan Patterson. You guys might remember um, the Arzim team came like at the very start of this year, um, which feels like 10 years ago now, but they did. Um, and when we met them, um, they really expanded our network and they got us to meet a few really awesome people, one of whom um, was Alex. So, dude, absolute pleasure and joy to be with you tonight and i'll just hand it over to you oh sweet as great thanks shady um man cool name for tomorrow night's event quarantine youth great um great little pun there you know it takes great brains to make a pun like that in my opinion so my hat goes off to you it is so nice to be with each of you this evening um there's a number of different faces here some familiar um, some not familiar and I hope that tonight you get a bit of an insight into my story and that you'd be encouraged um, to bring any question that you have um, to the Christian faith knowing that God's not like the sweaty guilty defendant um, before us as judges but he's open and ready to um, respond to your questions because one of the things we like saying at the ministry that I work for is that truth invites questioning uh, and one of our fundamental convictions is that Christianity is true and because of that, it means we're free to question, never with pride, that would just be inappropriate, um, but nonetheless free to question. Um, my story as a Christian, um, for what it's worth, um, began when I was 15. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Uh, I had no Christian upbringing, no Christian framework. And some of you might be able to relate to that. Many of you won't. Um, but I would always say there was two things that were true about me growing up. The first thing that was true about me was that I thought deeply, but not well. Um, what I mean by that is I was the kind of guy who'd lay in bed at night thinking about life. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Where was I before this? Why don't I remember? What's this all about? I thought deeply, but I'd never go and research those questions. I'd never ask trusted people in my life the answer to those questions. Maybe you've done this yourself. You've thought deeply, but not well. That was the first thing that was true about me. I wanted to know the meaning of life but I never put any effort into trying to figure that out more intentionally. Um, the second thing that was true about me was that I had a guilt complex. What I mean is whenever I did something wrong, I just knew about it. I knew that when I'd failed to keep a word that I would promised to a friend or I deliberately disobeyed my parents, it didn't just feel like I was going against my own individual preferences. It didn't just feel like I was failing them. It felt like I was failing the universe. It felt like a big deal. But I've been told my whole life that this life is an accident, that no one made me, uh, that this world is just a cosmic um, uh, mistake, and that there was no ultimate meaning or purpose to life. And so I couldn't explain why I felt the way that I did. And through a number of events, and more particularly like a, a camp that I went on when I was in year 10, uh, 15 years old, um, I noticed in the life of some Christian leaders at this camp that they had something that I didn't. They seemed content with life. They seemed joy-filled. They seemed happy. And all I knew was my question for meaning, but my lack of meaning and my deep sense of guilt and my inability to explain that. And they started to unpack for me the Christian story. I got home from this camp and one of the prayers that I prayed on that camp was, God, if you're real, would you show up in my life? Got home from this camp, it was around Easter time, and uh, I, I asked my sister, my only sibling, I said, Sophie, how was your Easter? And she said, it was great. I started going to church. Same family, non-Christians, and my one sibling around the Easter that I was questioning whether God was real, she came to me and said, I've started going to church, I'm a Christian. And so one of the older kids at school asked me if I wanted to go to church with them. And I thought, man, that'd give me some sweet street cred, hanging out with older kids from the school. I'll go to church. Went along to church. And that Sunday, there was a guest preacher and he preached for an hour and a half, which I promise I won't do tonight. He preached for an hour and a half and he preached on Proverbs. And he opened up the Proverbs, which is a book in the Old Testament. And he read a, read a proverb, which says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And he made this case that God is big he made me for himself. He made all of us for himself. Uh, and we were made for him. Uh, and we were made to follow him and live his way. But we've all turned away from him. 
And at the end of our lives, we give an account to him for what we've done, how we've lived, all those kinds of things. And I remember thinking, man, I've got a guilt complex. This is bad news for me. I know that I've failed. But everyone around me, it wasn't bad news to them. I couldn't figure out why. And it raised the question, why isn't it bad news that the God to whom we give an account at the end of our lives is going to judge us? And the answer in the Christian story is that, yes, God does hold us to a standard of right and wrong, but that he himself and Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to reconcile us back to himself. And when I heard that message, it completely changed my life. And I wanted to commit my life, not just to following Jesus, but to helping others follow him as well. I've been doing that now for 10 years. Uh, So I'm in my mid twenties and I do what I do now full time, helping people wrestle with their questions about the Christian faith. And one of the big questions that people have about Christianity is, is the one that I'm going to talk about for the next 20 minutes. And it's this, if I'm really satisfied with my life, why would I bother with Christianity? Um, my life's good. I feel happy. I feel fulfilled. If I'm fulfilled already, why would I bother looking into Christianity? And that's a really fair question in my opinion. Um, because even one of my own objections growing up was, Surely Christianity can't be good news. Surely it couldn't be satisfying. Surely it's just a, a moral straitjacket. Surely it's just going to change the way that I live my life. Um, and if you've ever thought this, whether as a Christian or a non-Christian, you're actually in good company um, because I thought it. But actually there's an atheist who himself, um, an atheist just is a fancy word for a non-Christian, um, someone who doesn't believe in God. Uh, and there's a famous atheist philosopher. Uh, and I want to read to you some of the words that he said Uh, a number of years ago now, but it's quite an astonishing confession. Listen to these words. He said this. He said, I want atheism to be true. And I I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. What's he saying? I don't, I don't think that. This is this guy's quote, right? What's he saying? He's saying that sometimes what you believe to be true about the world doesn't matter at all. This is what he thinks. Um, what matters is what you want to be true. And one of the big objections to Christianity is that if God is real, he's, gonna ha- he's going to affect the way that I want to live my life. Christians feel this way sometimes and non-Christians in particular feel this way. We want to live our life our own way. We want to pursue our own desires. We want to do what we want with our lives. And if God is real, that's going to have to change, is it not? And that was one of my big objections to Christianity. And he, here he is, he's saying directly and explicitly that that's why he doesn't bother checking in to see whether Christianity is true, because he doesn't want it to be. That's a crazy confession. And those words should sink in. But the question remains, if I'm happy with my life, why would I bother checking to see whether Christianity is satisfying. And so for the next 15 minutes, let me unpack um, this one question, which is, which is this. Um, it's a deeper question. What does it really mean to be satisfied? So if someone says to you, I'm happy with my life, I'm satisfied with my life, why should I bother with this Jesus guy? Here's the question we each need to ask. What does it really mean to be satisfied? What does it really mean to be fulfilled? Um, a few years ago, there was a, an article released by a uh, American magazine in the States called the New Yorker. Um, many of you would not have read the New Yorker. I've not read the New Yorker much, but it tells this fascinating story about a debate that people would have in the United States about the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I don't know if you know about the Golden Gate Bridge. It's this huge red spanning bridge that connects one body of um, one body of land to another body of land in San Francisco. It's, it's, it's a famous bridge. And there's a huge debate about the bridge because as beautiful as the bridge is, and as, as, as a testament to the engineering of humanity as the bridge is, there's something really sad about the Golden Gate Bridge. The sad thing about the Golden Gate Bridge is that it is officially the most popular place in the world to commit suicide. So get this, this New New York article talks about this. Um, On one level, the Golden Gate Bridge is a testament to human engineering. 
In other words, it talks about human progress and how life's really great. At the same time, the Golden Gate Bridge is a monument to human meaninglessness. Why? Because it's one of the most popular places in the world to commit suicide. Um, the article, it talks about the debate that people are having about whether they should put up suicide barriers on the pedestrian walkway of the bridge. Uh, at the same time, the article, it talks about this man uh, in the 1970s who wanted to commit suicide. Uh, and so he makes his way to the bridge and he tells himself as he's walking along the pedestrian um, sidewalk, he says, if someone smiles at me while I walk along this bridge, I won't jump. He walks along, passes tourist after tourist, passes businessman after businesswoman, keeps going, no one smiles. He jumps and he dies and he loses his life. And then the article follows down from that story and it pens these words. Listen to this. It says, as people who work on the bridge know, smiles and gentle words don't always prevent suicides, but a barrier would. But to build one would be to acknowledge that we don't understand each other, to acknowledge that much of life is lived on the far side of the railing. Joseph Strauss, who is the bridge architect, he believed that the Golden Gate would demonstrate our control over nature, and so it did. It's a testament to human engineering. But at the same time, no engineer has discovered a way to control the wildness within. How crazy are those words? He's saying we can build the most beautiful things. We can have the most wonderful lives. The external world that we inhabit day to day with our phones, with our families, with our houses, with our schools, all the luxury that we experience, it can be amazing. But nothing, nothing in this world has figured out a way to tame and restore and satisfy and fulfill the human heart. See, I don't know if you guys know this, we live in one of the most advanced moments in human history. I mean, you could say that every second, right? Because it's technically true, you know, this second right now is more advanced than the second just before. But the technology we have, the food that we have, the schools that we have, the education that we have, the career opportunities that we have, the travel that's cheaply available to us or once was, um, if you're a young adult, the coffee that you have, particularly in Melbourne, the home of some of the best coffee in the world, all of these things are at our fingertips. If you're a young person, you're a teenager, you've got video games, you've got sports at school with friends, you've got a plethora, a huge multitude of friends to hang out with, all the wonderful external things. But none of that, none of that is sufficient enough, big enough, good enough, satisfying enough to meet you where you need it most, in the center of your human heart. Um, a few years ago, there was a book written by a journalist from the States in 2003. The journalist's name is Greg Easterbrook. And the title of the book, I won't tell you much about the book, I'll just tell you the title. The title is really interesting. The title is this, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. That's a pretty scary title. While life gets better, while people feel worse. That's a comment on the moment that we're living in. Life is externally amazing, but what do our hearts say? How do we feel deep down? What's it like to live our lives? We all long for fulfillment, but in a world where we're spoiled with choice, many of us are empty. And so here's the question. What are some of the ways that we try and satisfy ourselves in this life? And is it working? I want to run through four quick ways that you in your life are going to be tempted to find ultimate satisfaction, real satisfaction and fulfillment and show you how all of them fail. Every single one of them. I'm not going to tell you that those things are bad. Many of them are good, but I'm going to show you that if you center your life around these things, they'll crush you. They won't satisfy you and they'll leave you wanting. One of the first things that people center their lives around is sport. And this is my story, actually. Um, when I was growing up, I see an FC Barcelona uh, sticker on the back of someone's wall. I don't know if you saw the score between um, Bayern Munich. And I was like, oh, my gosh, six, was it 6-1? Um, not to shout that out publicly, but um, that was a wild, a wild highlights reel. Um, but my sport growing up was football. Um, and for all not, you non-purists out there, soccer. Um, any soccer, uh, any soccer football fans in the room, just give me some love in the chat. That'd be great. 
but my my sport was football and i grew up watching you know dvd how to's to bend it like beckham that was my thing beckham was a big deal in my day he's not so much these days um you can pay me out about it later uh, I wanted, I specifically wanted to play for Manchester United. I really thought I was going to make it. I was in this feeder squad, um, uh, training on the North side of Brisbane. Um, it was just my life. I'd train, uh, three nights a week. I'd play on Saturdays. I'd do fitness on Sundays. And then the off days that I wasn't training or playing, I'd be in the backyard with my trampoline turned on its side and a goalpost painted on it with spray paint. I'd be kicking top right. I mean, I, I can tell you this and you can believe me, but uh, it may not be true. I thought I was kicking top right penalty shots all afternoon until the sun went down. And then when I was 15, I was training, at, I was, um, I was training for regionals and uh, I jumped up for a, uh, like a, like a, not a bicycle, but an in-air volley. And I was in front of the goals and I jumped up and I kicked the ball and doesn't matter what the ball did, it, you know, in inverted brackets, it didn't go in. But as I came down and landed, uh, I did my ankle and I, I hobbled off the field and uh, I couldn't play again for months. I made the team, but it didn't matter. It, I couldn't play. And then a few months later, I thought, I'm going to get back on this horse. I'm going to try and play football again. I started playing again. My ankle was too weak. I did my ankle again. And I was told that unless I get it operated on, I'll never play competitive football again. And my dreams of bending it like Beckham were just completely dissolved, just like that, all in a couple of months. I centered my life around football. And the moment it was taken away from me, it gave me time enough to think deep enough about the big questions in life that I'd completely avoided until that moment. See, one of the things we do in life is if we, we try and find satisfaction in things that weren't made to satisfy us ultimately, and we just keep running from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the thing after that. And we never sit long enough to think deep enough about the big questions for why we're here. And that's what I'm talking about. When my football dreams were over, I didn't know what to do with my life. And it made me really start to think about that on a deeper level. There's another story. Um, one of America's best footballers, NFL this time, Gridiron. Um, he, his name's Tom Brady. Uh, any NFL fans uh, out there? Shame on you. Terrible. I'm just kidding. It's a great sport. Um, but his name's Tom Brady and he had just a few years ago, he just won his third Super Bowl, which if you don't know what the Super Bowl is, it's, it's the biggest deal in America uh, in terms of sporting events. Um, people who like the NBA might want to challenge me on that, but that's fine. It's a huge deal. And he won his third Super Bowl and this had never been done before. Most famous football player in all of America. And he was being interviewed on a TV program called 60 Minutes. They've got it in America as well. And the interviewer asked him, he said, what is it like to be Tom Brady? That was the question. And he said these words. He says, a lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted. And there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Most famous football player in American history. The first person to win three Super Bowls. And he says, man, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. He centered his life around sport. Sport was not sufficient enough, not big enough, not fulfilling enough, not satisfying enough to make his life satisfying. Couldn't do it. If you center your life around sport, which if you're a young person, it's really easy to do. It's one of the funnest things that we can do as, a young, as young people. When you get older, it's less possible. But if you center your life around sport, it's not sufficient enough. It's not gonna work. You won't be satisfied. There's always gonna be an emptiness in life. That's really hard news to hear. But if it's true, it's good news. What are some other ways that people uh, try and find satisfaction in life? Another way is career success. If I were to ask you right now, why are you studying? Many of you will say, I'm studying so I can get good grades. So then I'd ask you, why, you, why do you want to get good grades? And then you'd say, well, so I can get a good job. And then I ask you, why do you want to get a good job? And then you'd probably say, oh, so I can earn lots of money. Um, not everyone will say that. But then I'll ask you, okay, if your main purpose in life is to earn lots of money. Why is that? Why do you want to do that? And then most of you will probably say, oh, so I can buy stuff. And all of a sudden you realize with those really simple questions that many of us are aiming in life, 
just to have more stuff. That's pretty crazy when you think about it. Is not life more than stuff? Jesus himself said that. Have you ever wondered what you're aiming for in life? A lot of people aim for career success. Um, there's a movie from a few years ago. Uh, it's called Cool Runnings. Some of you older people in the Zoom chat will know the movie. Uh, young people, educate yourself. Cool Runnings, the Jamaican bobsled team. It's an amazing movie. Get onto it. But um, there's a moment in the film where Doris Bannock, um, who's one of the um, members on the bobsledding team, he's dreaming of winning gold at the Olympics. Dreaming of winning gold at the, at the Olympics. He and his team, they're training so hard. It's the Jamaican bobsled team. They don't have snow in Jamaica, so it's a huge deal. And the whole uh, movie is oriented towards the Jamaican bobsled team winning the gold at the Olympics. And so this guy, Doris, um, he asks his coach, he says, uh, coach, what's it like winning gold? And the coach says this, these words. He says, a gold medal is a beautiful thing. But if you're not enough with it, you'll never be enough without it. What's he saying? He's saying success is a really good thing. But if you aim your life at being successful in your career or what you do, then when you get it, it won't satisfy you. And if you don't, you'll, you'll feel hopeless. Jim Carrey, one of the comedians that I grew up watching, uh, he's a hilarious guy, uh, a bit bit strange these days, but um, hilarious guy uh, when I grew up watching him. And he, he said these words. He said, I think that everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they can see that it's not the answer. World famous comedian, crazy words, top of his career. I want everyone to do everything they ever dreamed. Why? So they can see that it's not the answer. So the question is, what is the answer? Well, some, for some people, it's not sports. It definitely can't be career success. For some people, it's money. Um, for some people, it's all about money. There's this age-old myth that goes like this, that money can't buy you happiness. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that Australian proverb, which goes like this, money can't buy you happiness, but money can buy you a jet ski. And have you ever seen someone who looks sad on a jet ski? Um, basically, <laughs> basically, that's a proverb which is particular to Australia. Um, but money can't buy you happiness. Um, you know, that proverb is 100% true. A number of years ago, the world's richest man, a guy named John D. Rockefeller, he was asked these words. Um, he was the richest man in America. Uh, and he was asked these words. He, he was asked, how much money, John, is enough? How much money is enough? Richest man in, in America at the time. How much money is enough? And he responded with these famous words. He said, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Sports, they won't satisfy you. Career success, it won't satisfy you. Money, even if you're the richest man in the world, it won't satisfy you. These things aren't good enough. They're not sufficient enough. They're not deep enough. They're not big enough to satisfy the human heart. And so what about the deepest thing yet? relationships you know um, there's an old song um, again many of you won't know this song but uh, there's an artist called Cat Stevens who my parents used to listen to Cat Stevens when I was growing up so I didn't know this song um, until my parents uh, unfortunately showed it to me but the song it talks about how the best life is the kind of life where you get the relationship you want and you settle down it's like the Disney you know the Disney narrative the disney story they lived happily ever after but the lyrics of this song they go like this uh, it says find a girl settle down if you want you can marry look at me i am old but i'm happy and he's singing about what most people aim their lives around the most meaningful answer that a world without god can give to the question of satisfaction is this the relationships we have now, don't hear me wrong. Relationships are really, really good. But there's, there's something here that we need to talk about. And it's this, that if you center your entire life around love and relationships, you're going to crush the people you love and they won't satisfy you in the way you need to be satisfied. It's just not possible. It's not possible to get that from another human being. 
not when the human heart has been made to know and be known by God. One of my favorite um, music artists, and I'm sort of, I'm going to reveal to you that I, I'm pretty cool in the music scene uh, at this point. One of my favorite music artists is a guy named Justin Vernon, who's the bearded beauty behind a, a band called Bon Iver. And a few years ago, one of the top chart songs that sat you know, right at the top was a song called Skinny Love. Uh, and many of you will know the song. Um, Come on, skinny love, just last the year, poor little salt, we were never here, is how the lyrics go. And Justin Vernon, when he writes his music, he's very cryptic, he's very mysterious. He never really reveals what he's writing about. And if you look at the lyrics, it's super hard to figure out. It's like, what is this song about? But a few years ago, he was being interviewed by this like alternative uh, music magazine called Pitchfork. And he was describing the song. And I want to read to you the way that he described uh, the, the song Skinny Love. He said this, he says, I'm not afraid to talk about the song Skinny Love. It's about that time in a relationship that I was going through. He says, you're in a relationship because you need help. But that's not necessarily why you should be in a relationship. And that's skinny. That love doesn't have weight. Skinny love doesn't have a chance because it's not nourished. Now, even though that, those words are hard to understand. What's he saying? He's saying that if you get into a relationship, looking for the other person to be your fulfillment in life, to be everything, you're going to give them more damage and yourself more damage than delight. Nobody can handle the pressure. No one can handle the pressure of being the center of somebody else's world. It's too much pressure. No one can handle it. And J Justin Vernon, this like cryptic, mysterious, beautiful songwriter, he's saying that. He's not a Christian, but he's saying that. He's saying, if you get into a relationship because you're depending on someone to be everything to you, it's going to break your heart. That's the point. If you treat relationships as the avenue through which you find life's fulfillment, you become more empty. And that's the classic case of looking for love in all the wrong places. Earthly love is good, but if we make it ultimate, if we make it the thing in our lives, it'll just hurt us. So to summarize all this, one, sports are good, really fun. But if you make them ultimate, if you center your life around it, it's not significant enough to satisfy you. Career success, it's good. Don't get me wrong. Work hard. That's part of us being image bearers of God. But if you center your life around career success, you'll be anxious your whole life because you can always be more successful. You'll never have made it. No one ever makes it. And even when they do, they feel like they, to quote Jim Carrey, you know, it's not the answer. Uh, money, it's good, but if we make it God in our lives, if we center our life around it, it becomes an idol and we worship it and it never works. Money is not significant enough to satisfy us ultimately in this life. And relationships, love is good, relationships are good, but if you make it ultimate in your life, you'll hurt other people and you'll hurt yourself and you'll never be able to experience the beauty of vulnerable, free, love. So here's the question. Have you, especially if you're not a Christian listening to this, have you ever thought that the emptiness you feel in trying to let all these different things satisfy you, the emptiness you feel in that, have you ever thought that this could be a clue to the fact that you were made for something so much more? And that's the answer the Christian story gives, that our hearts were made to be known by God and loved by God, that all these things are good, but the primary thing around which we center our lives, the primary thing that we make significant in our lives, the primary thing that is satisfying and fulfilling is God. Now, believe it or not, and this will be my last major point, um, there's a story in the Gospels, uh, the Gospel of John, which uh, tells, uh, talks about this very idea. John chapter four. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the story. It's the story of the woman at the well and Jesus goes to meet her. Um, uh, it's about a woman who'd sent, centered her entire life around earthly relationships. The story goes that Jesus was traveling around Galilee uh, and to a place called Samaria. 
And on his way through, he meets a woman at the well drawing water for herself. And Jesus asks her for a drink of water. Uh, I hope this is ringing some bells in some of your minds. The woman responds to him. She says, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answered her. He said, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. I have fresh living water. So she looks at Jesus and is like, man, you don't even have a bucket to get water from my well. How can you get fresh water? Do you know of another well from, different from this one? And Jesus answered. He said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, at this point, she's interested. She says, sir, give me this water so that I may never thirst again. And then Jesus goes left field on her, gets a bit strange and says, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. You, you, when you say you have no husband, you've had five. And the one that you're with now is not your husband. And she says, you're right. The story is a bit strange. I'll admit that. But there's something really deep going on. Here's what's going on. Jesus is saying physical water satisfies physical thirst. We all agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. Peace, that part's done. So Jesus uses this as a metaphor through which to talk about his satisfying life. Think about it like this. He says, I have water which will quench all thirsts, all deep hungers in life. There there exists in the person of Jesus a type of deep satisfaction, a type of deep fulfillment, which is what all of our trivial, silly, earthly hungers point to. Um, And he says, I have access to it. And so she says, I want in. Hook me up with this. This sounds amazing. And then he he starts talking about her husband. Why? Well, he says, all, think about it like this. He says, all human desires aim at earthly satisfactions. Makes sense? You want food, there's food. You're thirsty, there's drink. Um, uh, Different types of desires for different types of satisfactions. That makes sense. Um, But then he says, I have access to a satisfaction and fulfillment, which will make all of these pale in comparison. See, he says, you, a Samaritan woman, have decided to pursue ultimate fulfillment, not in relationship with God who made you, but in the arms of men. That's what he says to the Samaritan woman. And here's what that's doing to you. Husband after husband after husband after husband, running from one thing to find satisfaction in it, realizing it's failing you, to the next thing, realizing it's failing you, to the next thing, realizing that it's failing you. Always longing, never fulfilled. Have you ever thought, this is Jesus's question to her, have you ever thought that what you're looking for in the arm of a husband can only be found by embracing me. That's Jesus's question to this woman. And it's Jesus's question to each of us always. See, Jesus's answer to the problem of our emptiness is not another ritual, not another thing, not another gift on this earth. It's him. Jesus is the answer to our emptiness. He's the only one who can satisfy. He's the only one who can fulfill us. He's the only thing for which we were made without which our whole lives feel restless and wrong. Jesus is the ultimate thing around which each of us should center our lives. Not at the expense of doing good things and enjoying our career or our sports or our success. Not at the expense of that, but in a way which makes those things less important. And a fancy way to talk about it would be to say it relativizes those things. Jesus becomes king ultimate supreme and when he's on the throne all of those things fall into their place you're able to enjoy them for what they are but not put the pressure on them to be everything to you because they're not because you've got the one thing your heart was made for god in jesus christ that's the point let me finish by reading to you a quote from a uh, christian thinker from the last century a guy named C.S. Lewis, he wrote uh, a series of novels called The Chronicles of Narnia, which are awesome reading, no matter what age you are. You could be 15 or 53. They're awesome reading. But he said these words. Let me read these to you. He said, It would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He says this about us. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday 
at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What's he saying? He's saying, when you become a Christian, you don't stop having desires and you don't stop wanting to do fun things in this world, but they become less important. Why? Because what's truly satisfying, what's truly fun, what's truly life's greatest adventure is following Jesus. That's the point. And so as we come to a close, uh, I want to pray for us in a second, if that's all right. Um, sweet. But the one thing I want you just to think about right now, each of us, um, if you're not a Christian, uh, what's the thing that you've made ultimate in your life? And the question I want to ask you is, is it working? Do you wake up every day thinking this is amazing? Or is there, a, is there like a little rock in your shoe that every time you walk, you think, ah, is this all there is to life? To you, I want to say, follow Jesus. And tonight could be the night. For the Christian in the room listening to this, the question I want to ask you is this. Is there something in your life which you've just given too much significance towards, which you've made too, too important? God would ask you to think about that, to really consider whether you've made it too important. And if it's, if it's gotten to a point where it's so ultimate in your life that you need to give it up to be able to follow him honestly and faithfully to really consider doing that. Now it's going to be a pretty extreme thing for you to do that. Um, but that's why people talk about the cost of following Jesus. Um, and so if that's something that you really need to think about, I just want to invite you to do that and with honesty before God and maybe sharing with one of your leaders afterwards or a peer um, in transparency and community, uh, feel free to do that. But let me pray. I'm just going to lead us through a really simple prayer. It's the prayer of repentance where we say, sorry, God, thank you for um, yourself and what you've done. And please come into my life. Help me follow Jesus. And so um, all of us can pray that prayer, uh, whether we've been a Christian for you know decades or whether uh, we're looking at Christianity from the outside in. So do you want to just close your eyes with me and I'll quickly lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, sorry for... Um, taking the good things of this world and treating them as God, taking trivial things and making them ultimate. Lord, sorry for that. Uh, it's made me empty. I don't like it. Uh, Father, thank you that Jesus is the one thing that can satisfy me in this life and satisfy all people in this life. And I, we ask, Lord, please, would you uh, help us follow you? Help us make you the center of our lives, put you on the throne where you really are. Uh, and would that be to us joy? And would it be to us life and fulfillment? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if any of that struck a chord with any of you guys, please don't let tonight finish without talking to one of your leaders or peers um, because uh, anything could be going on in here and in here. But unless you share it with God's people, uh, it could amount to um, just a nice little thing that you think of, but that it'll stop tonight. So please share it with um, people that you trust uh, and more particularly with leaders of the youth and young ads ministry. Um, that'd be really meaningful. We'll transition now into a time of q and I want to invite you to ask any question you like. And um, if I can answer it, I'll do my best. Uh, that would be my, my pleasure. But let me hand it back to Shady and we'll go from there. Bro. God bless you, man. Thank you so much for a very timely word, I think. A very timeless word, I should say. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't change. Um, our need for God doesn't change. I love what you said about our hearts being made for him so nothing else can satisfy them until they are in him. Um, I'm sure the questions will start coming in because there aren't that many in there right now. And one of them that was in there was um, how do you convince a non-Christian that um, you know, there, there is a need for, for Christ and you just spent the last half an hour answering that. Yeah. Um, so I guess one of mine for you while, um, uh, while that's coming up is I kind of feel like from the outside looking in, Christianity is the set of kind of rules and restrictions like you were sort of mentioning at the start where, um, sure, my life right now, I'm kind of coming to the realization that it's not that satisfying but at least I can still drink and have sex whenever I want and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But if I go to this thing, like, oh, it'll, 
I'll have to go to church and I'll, you know, have to dress a certain way and I'll have to like, and I don't, I don't kind of like, I don't, I, I almost don't want to keep what I have, but I don't want to lose it at the same time. And so how do I kind of embrace and really believe, Hey, what Jesus does have for me mm. is actually better. It's not necessarily the set of rules or whatever. How do I battle that perception? Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, let me say two things to that. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I used to think that God was just something you do on Sundays. And I used to think that your, that your religion was just something that you like ticked on like a survey form, you know, when you were filling out forms for school or if you're an adult, if you're an adult, it's what you fill out when the religious survey comes around every four years in Australia. And that kind of mindset is a bit like saying that um, if you think about your life as a dinner table, this is abstract, but go with it. If you think about your life as a dinner table, this is the first thing I'm saying. Um, and all the different things in your life are like different dishes on the table. So you might have like a dish called school. You might have a dish called university. You might have a dish called family. And then you've got a dish called religion, you know? And if you change your religion from atheist to Christian or from Buddhist to Hindu or from whatever, you just change one of those dishes on the table. Many people think that that's, what's, well, that, that that's what it means to become a Christian, just to change one thing in their life, you know? That is the wrong perception. When you become a Christian, you get rid of the table you had and you replace it with a new one, which means all the dishes on the table now need to be filtered through this larger question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Mm. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean just like changing your religion status and going to church on Sundays it completely changes your view of reality and life. And therefore, when you start to ask questions like, how do I live? How do I dress? What do I do with my time? Of course, you're going to ask that. Why? Because you've got a whole new definition of life. This is much bigger than just changing your religion status on Facebook or relate, you know? So that's the first point. Um, becoming a Christian is way, way bigger and way more significant which means all those really small, the smaller questions of like, how do I live? They're, they actually fall into place a lot easier when you realize the bigness of what it means to become a Christian. The second thing is, um, a lot of people, when they talk about the desires they want to follow in life, you know, maybe it's, um, I, want to, I, want to, I want to sleep around, or it's, I want to go to parties and drink however much I want, or all the things which are temptation in any normal human's life. Hmm. Um, those types of things, the older you get, the more you realize that those things are what we call trivial, meaning small, elemental, uh, daily things. And the difference of what's on offer in the Christian story is not another trivial thing, which you're trying to compare to all the other trivial things you're doing. It's an ultimate thing. Um, or another way to talk about it is like philosophers use these fancy words. They say like the things that we do in life are imminent things. They're like earthly things, material things, all that kind of stuff. Um, but when we talk about becoming a Christian, we're talking about something transcendent, otherworldly, it's eternal. Um, and so when you're asking, um, when you, when you look at your life and you think, man, life's really good, but you haven't got God in it. You're really saying, I've got a bunch of really cool, trivial things. That's what you're saying. But when you become a Christian, you're given something ultimate, which means this, becoming a Christian can actually look harder. In the early church, you know, actually it's, it's believed and most of it's been verified, but not all of it. It is believed and passed on by tradition that all of the early apostles, uh, all 11, 12, uh, they lost their life for following Jesus. Peter, uh, apparently, uh, it's held by some of the texts that survive, uh, was crucified upside down for following Jesus. Now, here's the point. I can still confidently say that following Jesus is better than not being a Christian. Why? Because what's on offer is real life meaning, real life satisfaction, soul and heart health. And what, when you compare trivial things like being able to follow your desire sexually or being able to fill your stomach with alcohol or all those kinds of things, they're actually like the shadow version of what we're really talking about. And so the question I would have for you and your non-Christian friend who thinks, I just want to live life however I want is this. Like the question I would have is when you compare those two things, which really sounds better? Ultimate meaning or like following your desires? Um, Shady, could I say one more thing? Okay, sweet. 
Um, the last thing I would want to say is that, so a few years ago, I read a book, it's called The Picture of Dorian Gray, written by a guy named Oscar Wilde. Uh, and the story tells the, it tells the story of this guy. He's a really beautiful young man. And he's so obsessed with his beauty. Uh, and someone paints his portrait for him. And the moment the portrait is painted, the, the painting takes on this like magic life of its own such that uh, whenever Oscar, not Oscar, Dorian does something wrong with his life or just follows his desires wherever he wants to go, um, uh, the mistakes and the things, the, the damage that he does to himself, it doesn't show up in his own face. It appears on the painting, which Dorian there, therefore um, thinks, he thinks I can do whatever I want with my life and it won't affect me. That's what he thinks. And so he starts living life however he wants. He drinks, has set, like, does everything he wants. But then he starts asking himself this question, what's the painting look like? And then he gets obsessed with going every night into his storage closet to look at the painting. And every night the painting gets more and more ugly, more and more vicious, more and more cruel. And to, just to spoil it, Dorian ends up taking his own life because he can't stand the image of himself that exists in the painting. And the whole point of the story is this. If you want to be free in life to, to follow your desires, what's going to happen is those things that you find uh, that your desires aim at to fulfill you, they're not going to satisfy you, but then you're going to spend your life entirely enslaved to your desires. And the moment you're enslaved to your desires, they, uh, the things that fulfill you completely uh, grow in their inability to satisfy. And the more and more you do that, the question is always open, who am I becoming? Uh, and so one, when you become a Christian, you're changing your entire life, which makes all those other questions easier to answer. Two, um, when you compare what's on offer, it doesn't mean life's gonna be easier as a Christian, but it will be more ultimately satisfying. And when you compare that with trivial things, it's a no brainer, uh, in my opinion. And then three, um, the desires we have themselves, um, there's no guarantee that following those desires is going to be good for us in the first place. And uh, so it's really worth considering why is the desires we have good? Uh, and you might find that many of them that you do have aren't, and that's a scary place to be. I think that's brilliant, bro. Um, and it, it speaks to, um, a question here of, um, what if someone is convinced that worldly things they've pursued are enough satisfying? And I think you've just, you've just mm. answered that. Um, I also think that the deaths of um, those apostles speak volumes to how satisfying the thing they were dying for actually was. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because who in their right mind would just say, actually, me staying alive pales in comparison with me having Jesus. So if it's mm. going to cost my life, go right ahead. That's quite possibly the most extraordinary thing, I think, anyone, any declaration of, uh, that anybody can make about this life, that it is entirely meaningless in comparison to who got it really good question up the top here and guys keep thumbsing up the questions that you want answered most there's one with five thumbs so i'm going to ask that one in what way am i supposed to feel satisfied by jesus like is it a feeling are there supposed to be specific things that i feel or that i do um in, in essence what does it look like to be satisfied by jesus oh that's a great question yeah perfect okay so um I don't have a story for this one, so I'm just going to give you two things real straight up. The first thing is um, being a follower of Jesus, it feels different actually for everyone based on their individual makeup. Um, so some people really feel like God's speaking to them every second of every day. I don't have a Holy Spirit hotline and that's okay. Someone else might and that's cool too. It should all be celebrated. So the first thing I would say is it, it looks and feels different for everyone. But the biggest thing that we all have in common is this, that we right here, right now can be certain that we know why we were made. That's the point. That you, right here, right now, can have certainty. And that's an intellectual thing. Um, there's, there's emotional things that come, uh, but it's an intellectual thing. You can have certainty that you know why you were made. That's, that's, that is not a cheap thing. That is huge. Mm. Um, the biggest question that each of us have in life is, why am I here? Um, and so, yeah, maybe I'll, let me throw in one more thing. Um, uh, one of the ways that God routinely works in the Bible 
uh, is not directly with people, although that does happen, obviously, but the way, the, the modus operandi, God's mode of operation is through people. And one of the greatest, most satisfying things in life um, is, yes, coming into relationship with God, that is the greatest. Um, but the byproduct of that is that you're adopted into a family we call a church. Um, and so actually, this kind of group and this kind of support, especially in a time like COVID, it's actually God's family to you. And it's God's family to me. We're all brothers and sisters. And, and God intended something very specific. This is not a mistake um, that you would find love and care and support uh, in very concrete ways uh, in being part of the Christian church. Um, one of the things that my church does here in Sydney is whenever a new couple has a baby, uh, we post on Facebook in our church website uh, and we say, hey, let's try and cook them like a month of meals. Uh, so they who, you know, they're going to be dog tired just because they got a newborn. Um, uh, they don't have to cook. Um, those things are not accidental to God meeting you in this life. They're actually part of the way he does. Um, God always puts flesh on. Uh, if you want an example, Jesus. God always puts flesh on to meet humanity. He did that in Jesus and he's doing it now through his church. And so you can, you can feel not you can feel satisfied, fulfilled, loved, cared for in a deep and meaningful way by being so woven into the life of other Christians. It's one of my greatest joys. Uh, and it will be yours too, if you give yourself to it vulnerably and freely. That's um, one of the most beautiful aspects of following Jesus as being a part of his body and uh, mm. being, being a part of that amazing family and seeing him move through that family. Um, one, one more for me, just because I throw the hat in there, uh, peace with God, like that guilt complex, the way that you described it at the start of like, man, I feel like I'm doing the wrong thing and there are going to be consequences for this wrong thing that I'm, uh, and that I'm feeling it, that, that feeling is absolutely right. That's, that's true. Um, but in what Jesus did and coming to recognize, Hey, I am, I am a sinner. I have done the wrong thing. But Jesus paid for it, and I don't have to be bound to it anymore or to its consequence. Um, eternally, that is. In, in, on earth, I might still be bound to the consequence of you know, smoking 16 packs a day for five years or whatever. It might have a consequence. But eternally, in front of God, I'm free. He's not my judge anymore. He's my dad. There's a huge difference between those two. And I think that you know, there's the, the verse that says uh, we now have peace with God is quite possibly one of the most profound statements ever. It's like, no, we're not against him anymore. He's not against us. Um, he's as for us as a person can be. Um, and we belong to him and his family and all those wonderful things that you just said um, come as a byproduct of that peace. Nothing can buy you sleeping peacefully at night. Nothing uh, except following Jesus and, and being a part of his family. So that's an amazing thing. Next question is the exact opposite of the question I just asked. What if following Jesus has not made me feel fulfilled? Mm, yeah, great question. Um, let me share a story and I, I hope it'll be encouraging to you. When I was growing up, um, my parents, they wouldn't let me drink uh, straight Coke, uh, Coca-Cola. And uh, so what my mum would always do, and the re their reasoning was like, you know, this kid's super hyperactive. I was the kind of kid who like sat in the front lounge room and tried to imitate the silver Power Ranger when I watched them. And so having sugar, you know, just was not a good uh, recipe for keeping my mum's crockery uh, plates and cutlery in good condition. So my mum never let me have straight Coke. So what she'd do is she'd take the Coke out of the fridge, pour a little bit into a glass and then top it up with water. And my whole life, I remember thinking, yeah, Coke's not bad. This is pretty, this is fine. No worries. And then one day I was around at my aunt Trina's place. She had three boys. And so she, there was just no chance that she was going to keep them under control. So her kids ate and drank whatever they want. And I said, aunt Trina, can I have a glass of Coke? And she said, absolutely. Go to the fridge yourself. And I was like, I was four years old. I was like, this is, I'm a rock star. Got my can of Coke, grabbed it out of the fridge, cracked it, drank it. And I thought, oh my goodness. This is an elixir. This is real good stuff. And then my next thought was this. I've been lied to my whole life. By my mum. <laughs> and actually, one of my biggest objections to Christianity was 
that I thought it wasn't good, I wasn't satisfying, wasn't real, all those things. But it wasn't until I heard the truth that God made me for himself, that I ran away from him in my autonomy and rebellion, that Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile me back to God. And now I'm part of God's family here on earth as I await the day that he returns to make everything new. When I heard that story with clear eyes and open ears, and I thought, I've been lied to my whole life about this Christian thing. I didn't think it was as good. I didn't think it was as great. Didn't think it was as satisfying. And so my point to you is, if you're finding Christianity unsatisfying, my point to you, it's a real challenge. And I, in one way, I'm sorry about this. In another way, I'm not. Is, have you, have you, have you thought again about what you claim to know? Um, if the idea that God putting on flesh to live the life you should have, die the death you deserve so that you can be reconciled to him by grace through faith. If that doesn't light a fire under your heart, if that doesn't gather kindling around your soul, then that's a scary place to be. Now I've been there. We, ha- we, we do it all the time. The Christian life is one of up and ups and downs. And if you're a human, especially a teenager with hormones, man, like life is hard. And sometimes you just don't feel stuff and depression's a real thing. And it's part of the Christian life. We're not immune from those things in this world, but, but remind yourself again of the story that it's really good news. Um, and the other thing I would say final, yeah, there's, there's biblical precedent for this as well. One of the, one of the things that the Psalmist says is um, he says, why are you downcast? Oh, my soul, uh, which is an example of someone preaching to their heart. Uh, and so I just say you like remind yourself again and again of the goodness of the story uh, and what's been won for you. Um, the second thing, so that's a challenge. The second thing is be honest with um, your brothers and sisters about that. Um, you should not be ashamed. And if, if you are ashamed of this, I'm really sorry about that. That should not be the case. You should not be ashamed that your Christian journey is a struggle. Um, it's a struggle for a lot of people. Um, people in the Bible struggled. Great Christians throughout history really struggled following Jesus. And sometimes they wanted to give up. And it's the church of Jesus Christ, which are meant to be the stabilizing factor in that moment. And so um, think again about the story. Um, it really should melt our hearts. There's a famous hymn by a guy named uh, Charles Wesley, and it says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains flew off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You have had your chains broken off, your enslavement to sin, your enslavement to self, And Jesus Christ, by putting his spirit in you, has made you free and alive to God. That is the greatest adventure that is on offer to any human now and forever. Uh, And so remind yourself of that. And to be honest with the people that you trust, um, be really honest about that because you're not alone. uh, And that's okay. I think absolutely, bro. Um, And and also, I think a lot of us might feel... um, God is judging me for feeling this way. And, and you touched on the human element. You know, my, my brothers and sisters are touching, like everybody in, in church seems like such an epic Christian. I don't feel any of the things that they talk about. I don't see or hear any of the things that they talk about. Like, um, um, I don't measure up at all to this. I'm just going to go along and pretend or I'm going to exclude myself from that and I'm just going to give up or I'm going to, you know, uh, which is a, a horrible thing. So I guess my, my encouragement following on from what you just said is please, if you feel that way, press in. Don't press out. Press in. Press into God, especially, first and foremost. Be, he already knows what you're thinking and how you're feeling, and he can see through the, the thin kind of uh, pretend that you're, you're doing. Um, so please just, just tell him the truth. And, and he's, he's, he's right there. He's not waiting you know, with a bolt of lightning. He's, he's waiting for the exact opposite. If you remember the, uh, the lost son story, the prodigal son, um, as every single day that that kid was away in the wild, wasting his life, his dad was sit, like outside the house waiting on the road for him to come home. And while he was still a far way off, his dad ran to him and embraced him. And it, like, so if you're feeling far away, please understand that that's how God is waiting for you. Like that's, that's what's happening there. Um, so it's, it's not the opposite as well as, you know, what Alex just said about telling your brothers and sisters, um, as well. Yeah, I think, I think that's, um, that's amazing, bro. Um, actually one, there's, there's one last question before that. I'll just say this. 
like on days like today in Melbourne, there were heaps of clouds and it was, you know, a horrible rainy day, right? But that doesn't change at all the fact that the sun was still above those clouds and it was shining just as brightly as it did yesterday and every other day before that. Um, just because there are a bunch of clouds that roll in and you're like, I can't see God, I can't feel this, I can't think that. My, my soul is downcast, as Alex just said. Those are clouds. God's nature hasn't changed. Um, God himself hasn't, his love hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. The truth hasn't changed. Something in you has for a moment, but the beauty about clouds is that they pass and you'll see the sun again. So just in your mind. Okay, Alex, last one. Um, um, where do you draw the line between working hard at work and making your career a primary thing in your life, especially when work requires a lot from you? let me rephrase and just say, how do we know that the line is blurred from this is a secondary thing that I'm enjoying because God gave it to um, I've now transitioned into making this a primary thing. Mm, Yeah. Great. Cool. The first thing I would want to say is that if you are asking that question, you are the least at risk of making work the primary means through which you find satisfaction in life. When I was um, a young Christian, one of the things my friends and I joked about is we'd turn to each other and we'd say, is this sin? And then we'd laugh because we'd realize that actually one of the primary ways that you can avoid sin in your life is just by being open and questioning what sin actually is. That makes you the least vulnerable. Um, Any mentor or close friend in your life would be deeply worried if the last thing you cared about was making your job, the place from which you got your identity and satisfaction. But because you're asking that question, you are the least at risk. Um, That's the first thing to say. Um, And so therefore take heart. That's really comforting. Um, In many ways you could be sweet, Um, but um, some really helpful ways. And this just gets really concrete. Um, There's no like, you know, I can't go to my, my Bible and ask that question and be like, well, how do I, it's just not possible. Um, These questions require wisdom and they require friends who know us intimately. Uh, and so let me say one thing about, um, about that. Um, uh, it's gone. What was it? Um, oh my goodness. It's gone. Uh, how do we draw? What's the line? Oh, here it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was reading a book recently and, uh, uh, and CS Lewis was quoted in the book and CS Lewis had this, this crazy saying, he said, Um, You can tell a lot about a person uh, by how they react when they're being interrupted. I was like, oh, that sucks because I don't like being interrupted. Uh, Similarly, um, when you you won't be able to answer the question, have I made my work ultimate in life uh, by continuing to work and um, nailing at work. That's not entirely true, but go with it for a second. Um, The way you'll be able to tell whether you've made work the central thing in your life is if it's taken away from you and you react, you overreact. Um, So, uh, or if you fail at work on a project or you you don't have a reputation at work that you want to be as good, if that keeps you up at night, if that changes your eating habits, if that changes the way you relate to those that love you, if that makes you short-tempered, See, I'm not, going, I'm not going explicitly to the Bible for this. This is a wisdom thing uh, drawn out of biblical principles. Um, if, if you aren't the person you want to be at work, if you're not nailing at work as much as you want, or if you're at risk of losing your job, and that changes your character, that changes the way you represent Jesus, you could be. It's not certain, but it's, it's probable. You could be making work uh, too significant in your life. Um, one last thing to say about that, especially in a moment like this when, you know, COVID is, is making our jobs quite risky and vulnerable. Um, it's right to mourn losing a job. Uh, and it's right to feel satisfied when you do a good job. These are good things. It's kind of like um, uh, one writer used to talk about, you know, like there's two types of pride. One pride uh, is like arrogance. It's competitiveness. It's like thinking you're better than everyone else. Another kind of pride is like the innocent feeling of a job well done before your father. Um, and, and so God would invite us to do really well at our jobs and to feel satisfied, uh, work really hard six days a week and then take a Sabbath, work well to rest well, work well to rest well. Like that's a good thing. You can take pride in your work. Um, 
but there is a line and it's, and I guess what I'm, the last thing I would say is be honest with yourself, be vulnerable in community. Um, and people will be able to tell you those that are closest in your life, um, whether it is too significant for you. And if you ever lose it or you get interrupted or you don't have the reputation you want, and that changes you in a way that makes you less like Jesus, um, for a prolonged period of time, um, then, then you start asking some questions in community. Um, there's not a one size fit, not one, not one, one answer that fits all, um, for that question. I'm sorry, but, um, that's the nature of that kind of question. I think, yeah. Yeah. I'd be doing you a disservice if I said, here's the two things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're right. And, uh, one for me personally has been what occupies my thoughts when my mind wanders freely. Like, um, if I find that every kind of waking spare moment that I have goes back to this thing, whether it's work, sex, friends, a game, whatever, I'm like, hey, this is actually beginning to consume more of me than I am, that I'm, than I'm, you know, comfortable with. And it, my mind, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, it goes to this thing. That's a bit of a flag uh, for me personally. Anyway, but I think, guys, those are great questions. I know that if we keep going, one, there aren't any more kind of really different questions. They're all in a similar vein, which is great. Um, and I think you've, you've answered those um, and you've done a brilliant job, bro.